0: Hey everybody, welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. Have you ever written with other people? I don't mean in the same room, all quietly chipping away at your own individual writing. I mean, have you ever collaborated during the creation phase Writers' Room style, where you're together breaking the story, pitching ideas, fleshing out characters, debating storylines on a shared project? If you have done this, how did it go? What worked? What didn't? What are the pros and cons? What did you learn about yourself? If you haven't, does that kind of writing process interest you? How do you imagine it would go? What's your ideal collaborative writing experience? So, I'm a steadfast introvert and I've done a lot of writing on my own. I'm comfortable doing that. However, under the right circumstances and with the right people for me, creative collaboration is my happiest, happy place. It is the best. And that brings me to this episode the second of two that I'm releasing about writing scripted audio fiction collaboratively. If you haven't already listened to the previous episode, then I encourage you to do that after you've listened to this one. If you've been following Artist Soapbox, you may know that we have two writing teams, each working on an original audio drama serial. The umbrella name for the writing teams is the Soapbox Audio Collective, Team 1 is writing a series called Jesus Pancake, and Team 2 is writing a series yet to be titled which we are temporarily calling The Last Glacier Hotel. Although the approaches of the teams have been different, both groups have completed writing an entire season of their audio drama. That's nine episodes each, which works out to about three to four hours of content per season. These two podcast episodes are a window into our collaborative writing process and include things we learned, tips for other writers who might want to try this, and tantalizing details about the stories of Jesus Pancake and The Last Glacier Hotel. I hope you glean some ideas and inspiration and feel encouraged to collaborate with others if that's something you feel inclined to do. Doing it all alone is a valid option if that suits you, but it's not the only option. In this episode, you'll hear from the Soapbox Audio Collective writing team, too. That includes Alan Mall, Ian Finley, and me, Tamara Kassane. Together, we're writing The Last Glacier Hotel. You may remember both Alan and Ian from previous episodes of Artist Soapbox, and I'll also include their bios in the show notes. As you'll hear in our conversation, The Last Glacier Hotel was written completely from scratch. We broke the story together in our first meeting, and then we were off. Each episode was written primarily, although not always entirely, by one person. We met every three to six weeks to give feedback and talk about how each written episode influenced the future trajectory of the series. Team 2 first convened in January 2020, so we were only able to be in person twice before lockdown. From March 2020 to the date of this recording, which is in November of 2020, we've met online only via Zoom. The Glacier Hotel audio drama is set in the future on the European continent and has a fairly large cast, including permanent hotel staff and transient guests. So, when will you be hearing The Last Glacier Hotel and Jesus Pancake scripted audio dramas with immersive sound design? Well, the answer is, not for a while. At this moment, due to many factors, including the complexity of the story, the size of the casts, and the length of the pieces, we are planning to record these in studio, in person. But we'll need to wait until it's safe to do so. also need some time to amass the funding required to pay all of the artists involved what can you do in the meantime to enjoy scripted audio dramas produced by artist soapbox well you can listen to master builder the new colossus and the recently released declaration of love audio anthology you can also become a patron via patreon where you'll have access to new, micro, and short fiction pieces, which are scheduled for release to our patrons in 2021. For links, pop on over to artistsoapbox.org or patreon.com slash artistsoapbox. I'll also include them in the show notes. Writing with the Soapbox Audio Collective teams over the course of last year and this year has been a wonderful way for me to make significant progress on my projects. And especially this year, it's helped me feel connected to other artists in my community. I think you'll hear from my laughter and the lightness in my voice how much I enjoyed this collaboration. Here's to working together, friends, in the writing room and beyond. Enjoy this episode. Hi, Ian. Hi, Alan. Thank you so much for joining me on this call.
1: Hello. Hey, it's great to be here.
0: (laughs) So we had a meeting just a few days ago to talk about a script that the three of us are writing. You are on one of the Soapbox Audio Collective writer teams. And I was looking back over the calendar because, you know, what is time? I don't even remember (laughs) what happened last year or even a couple of weeks ago. But I was looking back through some old emails. And last summer in 2019, I put out a call to see who might be interested in writing audio drama scripts collaboratively. You both responded, which was such a gift. And so that was in the summer. Then in September, I sent you an email in preparation for our first meeting that would happen in January. Now, listeners should know that you had no idea what you were signing up for, literally, because I had we had no script. I had no script, no idea, nothing. We were going to come up with this, just the three of us together. Mm-hmm. But I was looking back at this email, and it said that I would like to come up with a serial that utilizes a stable of recurring characters with lots of other different characters that pass through for one episode. Then I mentioned that I was ruminating on setting it at a hotel. And then, to even be more from left field, I talked about incorporating issues related to climate change. (laughs) (laughs) And then I said, but also it doesn't need to be at a hotel. And it could be a drama, although it doesn't need to be. And it can be a comedy, although not necessarily. Would you please bring some of your ideas (laughs) for our first meeting in January? And
1: the good news is after that, it wrote itself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The good news is you both showed up in January after that. (laughs) We
1: we were not properly frightened, yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe in retrospect, right? You should have been. So, So, okay. So given all of that why were you interested enough to sign on and to show up for our first meeting in January
2: sure so so i have i have this 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 long standing relationship with audio drama from way back when i was a little kid little like little maybe 9 years old maybe maybe i was 10 or 11 but i remember you know driving cross country and we would stop at cracker barrel which was by the way the the coolest thing ever, right? To go to Cracker Barrel. I was from I was from Utah and we just didn't get those,
1: except so learning like a lot about Ian that I didn't oh, know yet. Yeah. Oh yeah.
2: <laughs> um, but we would we would stop and you could get the old, like the shadow nose, that sort of thing. My my dad loved radio plays. And so we would listen to those driving, and that seemed just such an interesting form to me. And then I was in high school, and this was the early days of the internet. And I remember one of the first things I saw on the internet was a call for writers, for like a, a, again, they called it a radio drama for the internet. So we're talking proto-podcasts. This is like AOL bulletin board service (laughs) type of thing. So way, way back in the way back. And it was like, there was a robot and these like planets and things. And I was just For weeks, I would think about, oh, we could do this and that and the other thing. And I, of course, I never actually wrote anything for it. But that was one of the first times I remember being excited about writing an idea. And since then, I've been really, really engaged with this idea of audio drama. That's why I loved The Seagull, uh, New Colossus, that is, and uh, Master Builder, and all of these modern audio dramas coming out of Durham, and was so initially excited to work with you, Tamara, because you were sort of tapping into this this long fascination of mine. So that's that's where I came, came at it.
1: Yeah, and I share a lot of the enthusiasm. I'm also a podcast addict in terms of how much I love consuming these types of things. But I think for me, the main reason I wanted to join is, uh, playwriting is too often, in my opinion, a very solitary mm. creative mm. act. And, um, I love writing with other people. And I feel like, and I felt like, especially before this project, I didn't get to do it enough. And, you know, in the chance to work on something with, uh, people that I respect as much as you, Tamara, and you, Ian, was, uh, really exciting because it's, uh, I don't know. It's like you two are some people I've whose work I've been following, like you know, for years now, which is great. So I just felt very excited that I get to like make something with you two.
0: Yes, and I echo that. I was delighted, and it has been nothing but. It's like the gift that keeps on giving. Every time we get together, you know, uh, exactly. I, mean, even, I feel more affirmed that this is happening. So okay, so let's talk about collaborative writing, and I'm trying to think back because we broke the story together. Somebody take me through. How, how did all of this go?
2: So so here's what I remember of the meeting, and, and <clears throat> other people correct me, is that I went into the meeting thinking we had two really good ideas, this hotel with this room, uh, rotating cast of characters, and dealing with climate change, but I had no idea how they fit together. And then we had this fabulous meeting, and it, it became apparent that both of those things were both ways of looking at and understanding the transitory nature of life yes. that the the comings and goings in a hotel i I've, I've been fascinated again since i was a teenager with grand hotel and alan and i have joked about uh, the <coughs> musical of that so that that seemed you know it's not a place you go to it's only a place you pass through and yet it means a great deal in terms of memory and then the idea of climate change being a marker on how time passes And how, you know, the world changes around us. We realized that both of these were metaphors for the human condition and the the passing of time. And once, once we hit on that, then things began to fit together enormously because both of these were just two lenses of looking at the same object.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. I think um, the thing I would add to that is talking about climate change and talking about uh, a hotel, it became more and more about the idea and the human condition. It was about The fact that we all are on a limited time, that the clock is ticking all the time. And I think with uh, climate change, there's this sense that, okay, well, the planet we live on is irrevocably changing. Now, it's like not necessarily for the better in most ways, unless you're like the kind of person that likes to have it be hot all the time, (laughs) which I am not Mm -hmm. one of those people. But, uh, yeah, like thinking about just about that in the sense of just like trying to hold on desperately to these memories and experiences that we might not get to have on a warmer planet, like skiing and, you know, different kinds of like experiencing different kinds of ocean life and things like that. And I think Ian, you brought up one of your favorite greek philosophers it might have been one of the <laughs> yes. or something and it was just the idea that like the only re- i think you, you could say it more eloquently than me but the only way to really appreciate what you have is to see that it's that is to accept that mm-hmm. it's always passing away yeah yeah
2: that, that wasn't even one of the greeks that was that was the french guy that was proust
1: oh proust. Uh,
2: sorry yeah <laughs> and no no because no, because I, I you hear me ranting about epictetus too much um <laughs> um <laughs> But yeah, no. I rem- again, I remember this from high school, and th- this this kid said it in the opening speech of like our last choral concert. It this, it's like this introductory quote, like you do in high school, right? And it just has stuck with me my whole life. There are sort of three ways of experiencing something. There's like the moment when it actually happens. There's the anticipation of it happening in the future, and then there's the reflection of it happening in the past. And this is this is all Proust. But what Proust said was that. The reflection on it happening in the past is more real than the others because it sticks around with us more, and it's only in hindsight that we actually get any sort of clarity about it. In the moments, you know, we can be in the middle of this great love affair because it was Proust, right? He was talking about love affairs. Mm -hmm. That we're we're upset because our our train is late, or or you know, we stubbed our toe, and it's only in when we look back that we realize, oh crap, that was that was the great love of my life, and I wasn't even paying attention to it. So there is only as we look back, that we can see things. It, only once it's gone do we even appreciate it. Not until you don't know what you've got till it's gone. You don't even have it till it's gone, right? But yeah, it, I think once we, once we had that, it became a show about time and about loss. And, it's, and that, was, that was the great – I remember the sentence coming out of that meeting. It's like, okay, so it is a recurring comedy about loss. Great. Because, yes. um, I mean, that's the other delightful thing. Is that writing this has been such a, a treat, because both of you are writers I have such such sympathy with in terms of our writing styles, because we all three of us have a very light touch, right? We all tend to like to write about serious things in the lightest way possible, And that, I think, has been just really refreshing to be in a, a room with other people doing that sort of thing.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah, and I think that the conversation that just happened was a really good illustration of how ideas can take flight in Mm -hmm. a room together because, you know, I I or other people lob out these big ideas and then the other people in the room kind of take them and run with them. I sort of see it as one of those drawstring bags that starts out like really wide open Mm -hmm. and then people throw all sorts of things in it. And then very slowly we kind of draw the string in. So it Mm -hmm. tightens because we would do all of this back and forth and I was never quoting anyone, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you, you all would cover that. And then very gradually we would come back around. Okay. So how does this translate into a story that we can tell? How do we actually ground this in characters and story and setting? And so, you know, we would kind of gather it in and gather it in until we had something that we could actually walk forward with.
1: Yeah. yeah. And Tamara, right. you asked some of the best questions to inspire yes. ideas. Like I remember you, you just, I think we had gone on a particularly dour idea session <laughs> and what Tamara's like, so in what ways do you think our future 20 years from now are better? is better than what we have like how have humans gotten better at what they were doing or how they were acting and everything else and that inspired ian's uh you know the character in one of the latter episodes that was the uh, the theologian slash scientist Uh, because i think one of us said like well in the future perhaps science and religion have ended their schisms so finally you can have like scientist uh, theologians that don't feel any sense of conflict about that (laughs) yeah
2: yeah yeah
0: Yeah. There's, there's hope Mm -hmm. It's been an interesting year to write about the future, which, you know, I think we had to set it in the future in order for it to make sense, but it is, it has just been a very interesting time to project. Right. And I think it does bring up both anxiety and, and hope if we can kind of dig into that a little bit more.
2: Yeah, so it's uh, it's interesting speculative fiction, which is sort of what it is. I mean, we're setting it in the future, and there it is dif- a future that is different from the life we're living right now. So that is speculative in that way. But speculative fiction is always metaphorical right it is Mm -hmm. always a a thought experiment of you know what if our society was like this you know what if our society worked on the you know joseph campbell's principles and suddenly we have star wars or what if it worked on a a truly egalitarian and multicultural principle and then we have star trek Mm -hmm. and in ours we were sort of projecting out it seems to me what if we took some of the the valid concerns that we are dealing with right now? Because we kept keep sort of cycling back as we were writing this to the you know the actual science of you know, yeah, I, I, I love that note that you you sent me about how okra grows because that was a, a little side point. Mm-hmm. So you know how would how would climate affect that? So sort of projecting out our immediate reality, but then also saying, okay, what is the best we could do with that, right? Mm. What, are the, what are the good things, the magnificent things that that might back us into the corner of doing? Um, and maybe that could inspire us now.
0: Right. This time together has been interesting for me because it's helped me to learn more about how I approach things uh, as a writer. And I think, Alan, you you. You brought this up at the, at the very beginning, but I have learned that writing is very isolating for me and I don't like that. And I also can back myself into a corner because I fall into the same kind of habits. And so it has been wonderfully refreshing to be in a room with people who have other habits and other <laughs> ways of <laughs> right. structuring their work. And speaking of structure, a gift that you both have is being able to structure the plot and structure the episodes and outline things and do more rigorous research. None of those things are my gifts. I tend to write kind of intuitively and then there I am. I don't know how I got there. And so, you know, that can be wonderfully uh, liberating, Mm -hmm. but it also means that I can like go down a path and I don't know how to get back, you know? (laughs) So, um, So what have you discovered about your own way of writing through being with other people or did you already know it all?
2: <laughs> so okay, so I have I have three things. I'm going to try and say them all because I will forget them because okay. I, I can't hold anything in my brain anymore. Mm. So the first thing about that is that the, the converse of that is that. So I. Knows structure very well, right? It, it is tattooed on my arm, <laughs> literally. But, yes. but that is that is a blind spot as much as it is as as it is a good thing. In that I will slavishly stick to something that is structural, even when my hind brain is aware that it is no longer true to the character. And that is what I've loved having both of your eyes on this for to point out. That's like okay, well this okay this makes sense for the way you've set it up, but it doesn't make sense in the world, right? The world, if we actually think about the world or if we actually think about the the truth of the character, it doesn't make any sense. And so having that lens, because I think our strength as a writer is also our weakness as a writer, typically. And so having a mix of different people who have those different strengths is such a wonderful ability to see where our the blind spots are. And then the, the other thing, I've, I had three things, and one of them is gone already, I told you. Um,
1: <laughs> things pass away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but the, the thing that struck me is that prior to this project, I had not had good experience collaborative writing. Because I am very structured and set in my ways in, in that, and I tend to be a control freak and a bit of a perfectionist. Uh, My attempts at writing previously in any sort of group setting had had all been, you know, they hadn't been successful. They had been rather unpleasant. And it reminded me of, you know, those group projects from middle school, right, Mm. where one person ends up doing all the work and the other people feel left out. And this experience has been completely the opposite of that, utterly the opposite of that, in that I feel that we are all contributing hugely and that my own contributions aren't just like my part of it but rather what I'm doing is being informed and enriched by what you're doing. So I think Mm -hmm. that my big takeaway is collaborative writing can be actually quite brilliant. It's just a delight if you're writing with the right people who bring that combination of similarities. You know, we have a very similar tone, a very similar use of language, and enough differences, right? You know, the ability to view character, the ability to view structure, the ability to uh, to view the world, that they we can support each other. So I think it can be fantastic if you know the rest of the group—the the shoe of you, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: yeah. On the collaborative side, what I would say—the thing that I've learned the most about this—is uh, you can write with a lot of courage when you write with people <laughs> that you respect and trust, because there's this—there's a fearlessness that comes into. Well, if even if this gets really off base, then um, Ian and Tamara will bring you back in mm-hmm. and like help me fix it. <laughs> So there's something very delightful about it. like and I love that um you know when you get, we get stuck on problems with the season we had the confidence just to let different problems marinate and percolate over time and then to the point where you know it's like uh, I think in our last meeting Tamara, you like suggested like yeah what if the uh, pivotal event we decided to end the series on happened in the reverse and we were like oh yeah that actually that makes a lot more sense we should yes. do it that way. <laughs> Yeah. And it's great that like we can have the confidence and trust with each other to be able to make those kinds of big audacious things. And when you ask about what we've learned personally, I think the thing that's been so encouraging to me is um, I'm finding more of like my strengths and what I can do. And I think like I always kind of saw my marketing writing for technology companies and my playwriting as being somewhat different skills. One was the right brain side of me and one was the left brain side. And I think what's been encouraging about this is realizing that I can take what marketing writing taught me about about being handed like a writing prompt for something that I didn't understand and then within an hour do enough internet research that I can pretend to be an expert on it. (laughs) So it's given me confidence that I can bring it to something like this where I'm like, oh, okay, well, if we had like a visitor to to this hotel that was from this country, What changed in that country in the last 20 years? And I'm like, hello, Wikipedia, (laughs) what happened there? And then just rolling through with that and then being like, well, how would climate change change the following things? And you can start, there's all these economists and scientists and people that have published blogs and articles that are out there. And so if one's willing to be enough of a nerd about it, you really can learn very quickly about all these things. And it's been encouraging how I can apply those skills to something creative like this. Because before this, I had known that was useful, but I always kind of felt a little embarrassed. About it, and I think in this kind of format, it's been nice that I can like you know fake my way into expertise and have it actually take root in a story.
2: To jump on on that, so that that moment that that uh, Alan mentions, I think is a perfect example of this because we in our last writers' meeting, we completely changed the end of the um, of the, the first the season that we've been writing, and I think in, at least in my mind, m- the back of my head knew it was the right thing to do, and, and had known for some time. And if I were writing on my own, I would never have had the balls to do it. Um, <laughs> I, would never, I would have just stuck because I have my structure and I had, I had my outline. And I would have known in the back of my head, maybe even unverbal, that it wasn't quite right. And I've had a couple of plays where I've known there was something wrong. And I, I knew what it took to fix it, but I just wasn't brave enough to go there. And so this was terrific to have someone say, hey, that, you know, that, that thing in the back of your head, I think that too, let's, let's, let's go there. So Tamara, what was, what got you to think about that, that change? Um, it was, it, was it easy for you? Are you just naturally that brave? <laughs>
0: it's, it's so funny to hear you both talk about fearlessness, because it is such a relief to me to share the work of this, that it does make me feel i don't know if less afraid is i don't have to hold on to things too tightly it doesn't have to be all me and i i trust you enough that if it doesn't work or if i don't know how to do it if i can't do it that somebody will be there to help carry the load and so everything just feels easier everything flows a little bit more easily i don't tend to hold on to things too tightly when it comes to storylines or you know thinking that i The direction that I'm starting out in is the direction that I'm going to end up in. As I mentioned earlier, I kind of tend to write sort of intuitively, and then I wonder how I got there. Right, right. (laughs) And so I think, you know, it's like, well, things change, and this feels better, you know? And so um, the way that I surprise myself as a writer is doing that. But sometimes it kind of ends up biting me. Mm -hmm. The way that I have been delighted by our collaboration is that you surprise me. By coming up with different voices and different characters. And sometimes the episode, like we've plotted it out, but the way in which you got to the ending was, I couldn't have predicted it because I didn't write it. And so it's like every time I go into an episode that somebody else has written, it's like opening a present, you know? And I kind of like, I think I know what's inside. It's sort of what I asked for. So I think that's what it is. Mm -hmm. But then when I open it up, it's like, oh my gosh, look at this, you know? (laughs) And so that has been really, really fun for me. Yeah. Yeah. So we've already mentioned a couple of these things, but I'm just curious about recommendations. So say you ran into some people and they wanted to write collaboratively. What suggestions would you have for them?
2: Oh, what a great question. Oh, that's good. Uh, because, Because up to this point, I would have recommended that they not do it at all. <laughs> um, up until we had worked together, I would have, uh, and I, I have. I have told people, I have warned them away from doing that because the downside of a, a collaboration can be that you know, again, people get distracted or they they get. Weighed down, but I think as as just listening to this podcast may suggest that when it works, it works like nothing else, right? And and that's historically we can look at that as well because you know if we think of the great American tradition of musical theater, it's all collaboration, right? It's Rodgers and Hammerstein or Rodgers yeah. and Hart. You know, there's basically only Sondheim who does it by himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, even even Lin Manuel Miranda, it's Lin Manuel Miranda and actually Alex Lacamoire, right? So I think that there's a long tradition of it working, but I think you can learn a lot from musical theater in that people tended to have that one person, or maybe that two people that they worked with. because finding the right fit, it is a lot more like, you know, finding a, a, a boyfriend than finding a business partner, because it really mm. has more to do with a shared sense of aesthetic, a shared sense of values, a shared sense of the world, than just, okay, well, let's get together and do this job, because I've done that before, and it has never worked, whereas we <laughs> yeah. have, I think the three of us, very similar aesthetics, that tend to be you know, philosophical, poetic, and yet grounded in, in the real world, and that has been what's really opened the door.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would second a lot of that. I think, uh, the thing I w the way I would frame it is, um, recommendation I have for people who want to write collaboratively is uh, choose your partners with some care. And that's not to say that like, you know, because like, there, are, there are plenty, of, it's not to say that you should only work with people who, you know, creatively intimidate you and have done many, many things that you would like, love to emulate. <laughs> it's just that like, um you want to know that um one, that you respect the people you're working with. So if they give you a hard note or want to do something different than what you suggested that you will be more inclined to listen to them. But also it's like, I think um gauging somebody's uh, enthusiasm Enthusiasm is also a nice thing. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I think that's worked out really well is we've learned how how to let each of us play to our own strengths and write about things that we were passionate about. I think the joy of writing this Glacier Hotel thing has been that when you have rotating guests come in, you can allow each individual writer to say, "I'd like to write an episode about this, or I'm really interested in this kind of character," and then we can dive in and we can let that individual writer use his or her enthusiasm to complete that episode draft, and then we can all like chime in together about what um, we found interesting about it and what was what was exciting. Because I think sometimes it's – it's a, there's a fear with collaborative writing that it can turn into homework where, like, one person turns into the producer or kind of the Uber writer who tells yeah. the other ones, like, okay, you're going to write the episode where, like, you know, the train goes straight to hell. I hope you're fine with that. <laughs> yes. like? yeah. And then somebody has have to figure out, like, oh, um, is this a literal hell or is it scientific? <laughs> yeah, I better get on Wikipedia and then research yes. John Milton for the next two <laughs> hours. But <laughs> so I think, like, realizing that we could, like, work collaboratively and hold those partnerships – Loosely, but take it seriously was a really nice thing to discover together.
2: There were two other things that struck me about that that I think are more tangible than my my just you know finding a great partner. Uh, and they're both things that you have you guys have said, Tamara. One of the things that you have said several times, as you've submitted drafts for us our, our, our Christmas presents to sort of look at. Um, you, you've said again and again. You, know, I hold on to this very lightly, as you as you said here. And I think that that is one of the great things to come into a collaboration with. Both to give to each other to say, you know, I'm holding this lightly. Please give me feedback to this, and to give to yourself. Mm-hmm. Right? I don't think that you can be happy in a collaboration if every decision you make has to be clad in iron. I don't think yes. you can be happy as a writer mm-hmm. if every decision is clad in iron. Right? I, probably not. In life, can you be happy if it's that way? So, the lighter you hold to your ideas, the better it is for the other people in the writing. And the better it is for yourself in the writing. And then the other practical thing is, as Alan suggested, is that the episodic structure really helps with collaborative writing because it's not like the monolith of a play, right? A play is just terrifying, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. two acts, and they're massive. It's like 90 pages. That's just terrifying. Now, you look at what we've written. I printed it all out. I've got it right here. This is two solid inches of paper. <laughs> it's more this than is, 90
1: pages. Yeah, it's
2: more than 90 pages. It's ma- this is massive. But it was very bite-sized, right? It, it, was, it was nine episodes. Each episode, you know... A plot, B plot, the individual scenes were very small. So at any given writer's meeting, if there was a time where I was feeling overwhelmed, it's like okay, I'm not going to work that hard on this. I'm just going to take a revision of this episode and another time. Okay, we've got plenty of time. It's the summer. I'll take a whole episode. So the episodic structure of it lets us as Alan said, play to our own strengths, but also play to our own opportunities. Like when do I have time to write? When do we not have time to write? That if you were working on something like the solid block of a single play, Mm. that might not be possible.
1: Yeah. And um, one specific thing I would say before we get off the recommendation train is uh, on on the technology side, using um, Google Docs or some other form of shared view of a document is really useful because you can see when someone's like um, made suggestions when some when someone has uh, commented or asked a question and then all of us can see it at the same time and so you don't have mm. to wonder about like oh like when ian was responding to this was he looking at like version three or was he looking at version four it's really really nice when you know that everyone's looking at the exact same thing and i'm not plugging google specifically here it's just one of the easiest ones to uh, use for free
0: I do appreciate the episodic nature of a series like this. And so for people who are curious, we often did split them up by episode. And then one person would kind of be the head writer, shall we say, on a particular episode. But not always, because there were several times where I was like, I wrote three scenes. (laughs) That's it. Can anybody finish it? And so it was nice, even though the episodes themselves were short. There were also short scenes within the episode that we could cover for each other or uh, individually. If we, if we felt like this is my jam, this is the character I really want to write, or this is the conversation I really want to dive into.
2: Well, uh, Especially now that we've got, sort of got this and we're now beginning to tighten some bolts on it. uh, In our last meeting, it's like, so Alan, you really get this character's voice. Can you go back through all these other episodes and focus on that character? Right. Um, And, and, you know, I think we've, in fact, each of us, I think, has a character that we're sort of shepherding mm-hmm. through the process now. And again, I, that goes to this idea of lightly holding on to things. You know this is not my episode. This is an episode that I wrote a draft of, and these characters from this world exist in, all of these people can revise that and that goes to you've both heard me hop up and down about this particular thing mm-hmm. but the idea that playwriting is revision um, mm-hmm. which means that you can't ever hold on to anything right because if you're holding on to it it's not going to be able to change and change and evolution is the only way anything good ever gets made so allowing that revision process to be spread and shared among the group really is is the key but first you've got to be willing to revise and willing to let go yeah
0: Well, I think that, you know, having an abundance of writers for me means that there is an abundance of ideas, right? So I think that this, we keep talking about this idea of not holding tightly to things. And I think that's easier to do when you feel like there's more possibility in the room, Mm -hmm. right? So when I'm writing by myself, I'm like, I've got four ideas. (laughs) If I, if I don't use these four, then there are no more. But um, when I'm with you you all, I'm like, wow, we probably have way more than four ideas. Yes. We yeah. And we've stuff. been
2: talking about future seasons just because we have so many ideas. It's It won't fit. It won't mm-hmm. fit in a season, but they're good ideas. It's like So we, I think we've given ourselves a trap door of saying, well, well, we'll deal with that in a future season. We'll deal with that in a future season just so it doesn't weigh on us
1: too much. Yes, indeed.
0: Okay. I'd also like to... Talk about ego a little bit, because of the many things that I appreciate about you both. You know, we don't. I don't have to deal with like the big ego situation here. And you know, giving feedback to other writers or getting feedback as a writer, especially many years ago for me, each thing felt like a cut. You know what I mean? Um, I was like, oh, yeah. I just You know, I'm I'm the worst one, <laughs> and they think I'm terrible. You know what I mean? And so, being able to have A certain sort of humility and confidence, Mm -hmm. I think is very helpful and like faith and trust that like all comments are given are Mm well-intentioned are not commands, you know what I mean? Are not like, do this thing, I don't like it. You know, it's right. it's sort of their questions, their invitations, their impressions, those sorts of things. And that has made this so much easier than if I if I had to worry like, oh, I think, you know, they might be offended if I don't wordsmith the hell out of this right. comment. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. And, so. I, and I think one other nice thing about that is this, Ian talked about sharing a temperament among our group, but I get the impression that all three of us are the kinds of writers that are way harder on ourselves than any other human would ever be. Mm. And so like, um, that's not like a particular kind of psychosis that I would recommend <laughs> to everyone. <laughs> but it is it is really good on a collaborative side because i know that when i read a script that either that Tamara or Ian you shared with me you didn't just like wake up like like you know and just slam the keyboard for half an hour and then like hit send it's like you thought about it you crafted it like it's the product of uh, all of the energy you brought to it and i don't i'm not i am not am not saying that it's perfect or that you expected it to be but there was a measure of care and respect that you brought to your own work before you shared it with me and that makes it super super easy to know that um, like, I can comment with um, directness, but also just like the best because I, when I don't understand something, I know that you probably have an answer for me. And if you don't, then I think it's a good question. I know that you wouldn't be mad for me asking the question.
2: Right. I think the all three of us, we use the question mark as our most powerful tool. <laughs> um, so because those are the best comments, right? Because what you're asking is like, why is this? And there's going to be two answers. Either the playwright wasn't aware, like, what, you know, it, it, is this scene me- meant to be funny? The answer is either yes, in which case, oh, he's asking is it isn't reading as funny, yet I better sharpen up the funny, or no, oh, my God, this is getting laughs. It's supposed to be a tragedy, right? <laughs> so a small short story of me in grad school. So my first thesis advisor, Arthur Coped, wrote Wings, um, oh, dad, poor dad, momma's hanging in the closet feeling so sad, wonderful guy, one of the nicest people I will ever know in my life. Horrible giving notes mm. because halfway through the year, we realized we were all writing Arthur Copit's play. We were all writing what he would have written um, and not ours. My second thesis advisor was Doug Wright, um, who was just brilliant and genius about this. And what he said was the point of criticism is to hold a mirror up to the play. Because no playwright wants to write a bad play. Every playwright wants to write a brilliant play. They just don't know what they've written. So if you hold a mirror up, they can say, yes, that's what I intended to write. Or, oh, no, that's not what I intended. What I wanted was this other thing. Because we all have that perfect, wonderful Pulitzer Prize winning play in our hearts, but we're not sure if we've put it on the page yet. So asking the questions is a way of making it clear, you know, is is this what you're doing or is it this other thing? And then the the playwright can choose rather than than sort of rebelling against, uh, against that.
1: Beautiful.
0: I have two questions and then we will wrap it up. The first question is, is there anything audio drama specific? You both have a lot of experience writing plays for stage. Is there anything audio drama specific that you've learned during this process that you'd like to share?
2: Yes, yes. Oh, this is so exciting. <laughs> you, you can blow the budget to the moon. Mm-hmm. We have these... Things. So the, the you know, the, the the world of the play is this hotel that is the Grand Budapest Hotel and, and Grand Hotel Berlin, and it's all of these things. There's no way in the world we could afford this place with the palm court and the petit cafe and the spa <laughs> and and the you know the, the glacier itself, this enormous block of ice and the, the the corridor that leads to the glacier and then the amber archive beneath the hotel. It borders on magical realism because of the vividness and the metaphorical quality of these places. We couldn't build this, and if it did, it would seem shabby. But what audio does is it lets us paint with the, the audience's imagination, right? We describe some things, we have the sound effects of wind and gravel crunching, and we have, you know, The, the Last Glacier, mm-hmm. um, it, and, and, it's, and it's perfect and it's peerless. Hitchcock did it on film, but I think that idea of letting their imaginations fill it in because it just it it just blows up any sort of budget concerns for that, mm. which meant that we could be just crazy with this world and the world really feels like a character here, right? Yeah. Th- that is that's one of the things that's been lovely. And I think if we were thinking about, okay, but could we do that with one less set? Yeah. Uh, you know, does we have to shoot that on location? We would be a lot more timid in the drawing of that world
1: yeah i think like um all of us are close enough in age that we're part of that playwright generation that grew up being taught if you want your play produced make sure it has two and a half characters and one, yeah. set. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. because no theaters have any money and they won't be able to afford to do that. Oh my maybe, god! Then maybe once you're winning your Pulitzer, you can write a play with 18 people in it, but not until then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, for uh, real. I, even
2: that's pushing it. Let's be honest. They have yes. the 1930s. Yeah. Well, you, could, you could write. Uh, you can't take it with you. It'll never get done. Never
1: get done. So true. And I think, like, um, the reason why I think as playwrights, it's we've taken better to the audio side of it, is that the voices of the character are so important to set to creating the world like because you know it's like we can write sound effects and we can have like the sort of foley to help create like this soundscape to put the audience in the place but I think the thing that's done the most to establish our last glacier hotel as a real place is um thinking about how do the characters talk about it, how do they talk about the different rooms that are in there do the mm-hmm. does the does the sound of their voice change in the sense of like are they having to speak over something in the kitchen are they having to like whisper because they're in the archive and everyone needs to be quiet here and so. I think playwrights think more about the sounds and voices of their characters before they think about the visual sides of things. And I think that's been mm. a w- reason why we've uh, taken to this medium better than we might have expected.
2: And yet, we can still see things. There are yes. moments of tremendous spectacle, but we're seeing through the eyes and the words of the character, right? So when the honeymoon procession comes in, we see the silk gowns of these people, but we see them through the eyes of the concierge talking about them. Um, in the first episode, we see the bee sting cake that the the, the German is, is eating, because it's so lovingly and lusciously described in the process of, of eating it. So you can still get away with spectacle, even when no, you can't see anything, which is d- delightfully important possible
1: yeah one of mm-hmm. one of the fun, the funnier technical notes i think we've had to learn is that um because no one can see any of the characters literally that we're writing like we always have to think like oh maybe we should mention the names the guys should agree <laughs> each other by name yeah. in the scene just in case they haven't mm-hmm. learned the voice of the concierge yeah. or the voice of the cook yet
0: <laughs> Yeah. It's really it's that kind of stuff is really tricky, especially when you're writing a piece that has I mean, there are some characters that show up in every episode or every other episode, but then you have all these other characters coming through. You can't have too many in one scene because it gets really confusing and jumbled. And you also have to know who's in the room. And so they all have to be named. They have to be in some way described like relationships and things like that. So the the way of approaching exposition feels a little bit different and that stuff has to be seeded really early in the scene. Like I think the way that surprises are revealed is slightly topsy turvy in audio drama than on stage because you can't you can't hide things for so long that it's confusing in audio drama. Whereas on stage, you just you have more clues to kind of tide you over for the reveal. You know what I mean? Yeah. So final question. It's kind of a two-part question. Any last thoughts, A? And B, what are your hopes for this piece going forward?
2: The fun part of writing for me is always the bit where I get the actors together because I have such respect and awe, really, of actors. And to have them sitting around a table and saying these words and realizing, you know, that there's, you know, there's, there's real life there Uh, because a great actor, you know, you give Julie Oliver the worst thing I've ever written and it's going to be fabulous. She will, (laughs) she will wring a laugh out of that. You know, you, you give a great actor the worst thing and it's going to, it's going to be so fantastic and you give them something that can work. And it's just the most thrilling thing in the world. And this, Piece, because it does have this rotating cast of characters, really has the potential not only to to get a lot of wonderful actors involved in it, and a deliberately diverse set of actors. You know, mm-hmm. the, the idea is that this hotel is, is very important and so it draws people from all over the world. So we've had a chance to write a very diverse cast for this and the idea of also writing in a way that is about that uh, that voice. That first table read, I think, is just going to be the most thrilling thing in the world.
1: Yeah, absolutely. For me, what I always think about when I write something in some kind of dramatic form is uh, sharing it with the audience. So I just really hope that we can write something that people are going to Start episode one and then just be like, man, I I can't wait till the next one comes out, you know, and just and to be able to hear like firsthand, whether it's on the Internet or just running into our friends somewhere. Mm-hmm. like uh, It's like, yeah, I really love the work that you put together on that of the story I found really engaging and creative. I mean, that's what I look forward to. And I mean, like, uh, you know, we could all dream of having like. Jeff Bezos and Amazon Prime <laughs> throw, throw lots of money at us to make the live-action, you know, Glacier Hotel. Because that's happened yes. with shows that they've produced, like Homecoming. Mm-hmm. I think was originally a, a serial podcast before yeah. it became, yeah. you know, a TV show. But it's like, you know, in the it's like it would be great to be able to see it. But I think the joy of writing this with you two and sharing it with an audience that gets engaged with it is we've all already seen the last Glacier in our heads, even if we it's only been in audio form.
2: The other thing, exactly what Alan said, usually I don't much like the process of writing. It's it's what Dorothy Parker said, right? Yeah. I hate writing. I love having written, but I hate writing. But working with the two of you has made the actual writing process enjoyable, not just something that I have to shoulder my way through before I get to the fun part with the actors. Mm-hmm.
0: For sure. This is the hardest phase for me, which is the revision Really the first revision, the The revisions that come down the line are easier for me. But once you get kind of the first draft and then you have to do like the second one, oh, it's just, yeah. it's it's so hard. It's the worst. So my hope is that I will make it through that and also finish writing the pieces that, that I owe the group. But I think that both of the, the things that you mentioned, like having the actors read it and having people hear it for the first time, that's just something that's, oh, it would be wonderful. And I really, 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 really hope it manifests. Yeah. So we have that to look forward to. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes, yes. Thank you both so much for this conversation. It, you know, we've been together many times over the course of this year, I think two times in person and maybe the rest of them were, were virtual. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I feel like even just having this conversation, I've learned more about the process and about yeah. both, it's really fun. So, um, So thank you so much. I really appreciate you. And yay for us for getting um, through season one of The Last Glacier. Uh Yes.
2: Yes. My word. We have a draft. My word. We could could stop a door at the very least. (laughs) Exactly.
0: (laughs) All right. Thanks, guys. Absolutely.
1: Have a great one. Thank you.
0: The New Colossus is a dark comedy reboot of Chekhov's classic play, The Seagull. If you're a theater person, you might be thinking, everyone does The Seagull. To you, I say, not like this. If you're not a theater person, then you're thinking, what the heck is The Seagull? To you, I say, drama, big, huge family drama. Our contemporary adaptation with immersive sound design tackles questions of youth and aging, art and ambition, and what it means to dream in the face of failure. A six-part series that features original music and a fabulous team based out of North Carolina, The New Colossus. A family of frustrated, attention-starved artists flocks to the seashore. One of them has a gun. What could possibly go wrong?